0: Hi, I'm Dwayne. Um, yeah, I feel like like Emily said enough, right? <laughs> that was amazing. Um, uh, cool, I'm sort of at a loss for words. What an incredible uh, insight and awareness uh, from one of our youngest Life path folks. That's awesome. Um, uh, I am the youngest of four kids, and some of you are thinking, ah, oh, now I understand. I know, I know. We youngest have a reputation. Um, I'm not only the youngest of four kids, uh, but my older brothers, five years older than me, are twins. That creates a unique dynamic, right? So, older brothers who are twins. Uh, And then I had a sister who was seven years older than me. Two years older than the boys, seven years older than me. So, we had a very specific sort of family dynamic uh, in the house. And, you know, the sister was typically the responsible one, who took care of everyone else when the parents were gone. But there's this one particular story uh, that gets told over and over again in my family. Uh, My parents were gone for something. They were out for the evening. And for some reason, my sister also had to leave and was gone. And so the boys, the twins, were responsible for watching the baby. I was no more than five, probably four-ish around that, that time. Well, something happened inevitably that I was not happy about, and I got upset, and so I started crying. And so not only was I crying, I was crying pretty loud, and to hear my brothers tell the story, I was, I was screaming, right? And they were terrified that they were going to get in trouble, because not only was I crying, I was, I was actually screaming at the ceiling, because we lived in big apartment buildings, and so we were in a flat, and they thought, oh my gosh, there's neighbors upstairs, and he's yelling at the neighbors, because they're going to, you know, he wants them to come down and... Right. So okay What do you do when you're 10 Which they were about 10 And they'd seen enough 70's cop shows To know what you do to make somebody be quiet So they put a gag in my mouth <coughs> oh my God. But you know They weren't great problem solvers Because I, was just, I would just pull the gag out right? And so i pulled pull the gag out and I'd continue to scream So then they were like Okay how do we solve this problem Well now we've got to get his hands behind his back So they tied my hands behind my back gag in my mouth, but as you're probably figuring out, that really doesn't muffle the sound all that much. I'm not sure why they do that in all those cop shows when they're holding people hostage. A gag in the the mouth really doesn't keep you from from making noise, and so I was still making a lot of noise, so they said, okay, how can we solve that? All right, so they put a sock in my mouth, gagged me, hands still behind my back, and I'm still making a lot of noise, so what can we put him? Let's put him in a place that's really quiet, so they put me in a closet. So literally, my brothers bound and gagged me and put me in a closet, Um, and then for some reason my sister came home first and that's how my sister found us and and that's kind of the end of the story and the funny thing about that story is that it is a true story but all of the details I remember about the story are completely fabricated I have no memory of the story I have no memory of the event itself the story's been told enough that I'm sure it's true in its essence right So, it's been corroborated by my brothers and my sister and even my parents who heard about it after the fact, right? So, but this story was actually, uh, like, when I tell it to you now, I have images in my mind of the house in which it took place. But when I think about it really carefully, that's actually not the house. What I'm thinking of is my brother's girlfriend's house from when I was about 12. It's not the house we lived in when I was five. I have memories, images in my mind... ...of the hallway and the closet at the end of the hallway... ...but in the house we lived in... ...I don't think we had a closet at the end of the hallway. I even remember, I think I remember... ...what color the socks were, but that's silly. Of course I don't remember what color the socks were. The point is... ...that I, my mind sort of fills in all these details... ...when I hear the story... It was told again and again and again, and, and the point of the story was not so much the details, it was about the essence of what it was about. We told it for fun, because it's funny, but we also told it, it sort of it sort of describes the, the environment of the family, right? When you've got a family that big, and things are kind of crazy, and you've got twin boys, you sort of do their own thing, and they're a little rough and tumble. You've got an older sister who is the responsible one and in charge of everybody, and you got the kid, the baby, who's screaming at the neighbors because he wants to get his big brothers in trouble because that's the only way he can get back at them because he has no power. Right? All these dynamics in the story are the essence, are the truth. I watched this documentary on uh, the brain the other day. It was really fascinating. This particularly was about memory. And and what I learned, one thing I learned that was really unique and interesting is that memory, when we think about the past and remember the past, it literally activates the exact same neural network as when we imagine the future. It's the same brain function to remember the past as it is to imagine the future. That's why so much of our past ...colors and shapes our imagining about the future. And when we have things in our past that affect us in certain ways... ...it affects the way we move forward into our future. Pretty fascinating, yeah? So we've been talking about the book of Genesis. And I think it's really important to understand this idea... ...that stories we hear about the past... ...about our past, about the past that shapes and influences us... ...that affects us moving forward in the future... We hear and tell stories about the past in order to shape the way we move forward into the future. And that is the essence of what Genesis is about. Keith has called it a meaning-making document. The stories we find in Genesis are meaning-making stories. They are told and were told for generation after generation to create meaning and to shape the worldview of the people who told them. That's why they're important. Just a quick recap of the last few weeks... ...because it's important to get us where we are now. The first week we dove into Genesis... ...Keith talked about the idea of creation... ...and God spoke the world into being... ...and we'd used the phrase... ...words create worlds. And the story that we have... ...about the creation of the world... ...is very different than many of the other... ...narratives that were also common... ...in ancient times, right? He talked about the Babylonian story... which, ...which literally the world was created... ...out of violence... Out of a body being ripped apart. And half of it became the heavens and half became the earth. These stories of violence and war shape the people who tell them. Well, our story that we've inherited from the Hebrew people is a story of creation out of love. A story of creation out of goodness. God spoke into being. It wasn't created out of violence and war. It was him speaking the world into being. And then he declared it is good. Important to understand, that shapes our worldview. It shaped the worldview of the people who told that story. And then last week, we looked into a little bit more detail at the creation of human beings, when Adam and Eve were created. And the word that we talked about, if words create worlds, the word we talked about last week was partnership. God, unlike many of the competing narratives of of ancient times, our story says that God didn't create us to be minions, to do our bidding, to be our slaves, to play with us like puppets. God created us for partnership. He created us to be part of this world and to manage and to run and to, to help him in partnership. And so we dove into that a little bit last week. Well, I want to talk this week about another word. And that word is redemption. Because I see the word redemption woven through a number of stories in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And I'm not going to focus on one particular story. I'll start with the fall, with Adam and Eve, but I want to weave it through three or four different stories to kind of help you get an idea that these first 11 chapters of Genesis, although they are complex, there are many layers of meaning, and we could spend a whole lot of time in these first 11 chapters. I want you to see that this thread of redemption weaves its way through these first meaning-making stories that lead us up to the moment ...when God chooses a man by the name of Abraham... ...and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you... ...and through you, I'm going to redeem the entire world. The redemption narrative begins... ...in the earliest places in Genesis. Most of us are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. We hear it as children. And uh, it's a little bit more complex... ...than I think we, we give it credit for. And so sometimes as adults... ...we don't go back to it much and pay much attention... Um, But I want to talk about it, because I think it's really important to understand what happens. If you remember the story, God creates Adam and Eve, and he gives them instructions, and he says, don't go to this particular tree. The tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, don't eat from that tree. Uh, But one day, Eve is out hanging out, and the serpent kind of distorts God's words a little bit, and says, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree? Well, no, serpent, he didn't say that. He just said, I couldn't eat from that tree, or I'll die. And the serpent's like, ah, you won't die. You'll become like God. You'll be able to see good and evil. So it became tempting. Eve took the bait, ate the fruit, Adam ate the fruit. And all of a sudden, they could see good and evil. Whereas before, maybe they couldn't see it. They were living in goodness. They were living in in this state of being where all things were good. But now their eyes were opened and they could see good and evil. And they realized, oh, maybe we should be ashamed of ourselves. And they covered themselves. And they maybe we should be ashamed of our disobedience. And, and our, our what we've done and who we are. So they hid from God. God sought after them and said where are you? Where are you? So God has this conversation. And says you know this. This has consequences. Right. So what happens is. they There are some consequences that get laid out. And, and one of them. At the end of the story. Is they get expelled from the garden. And in our minds, when when I learned this story as a child, you kind of think of it this way. You kind of think of it like a child might think about it. God said not to do something. People did it, so they got punished. That's kind of how we think about it in those simplistic terms. But there is an amazing redemption in this story, and I want to get to it real quick. In the very end of the story... Of this particular story. In Genesis chapter 3 verses 21. Look at what happens. The Lord God made garments of skin. For Adam and his wife. And clothed them. Whoa wait a second. Remember when they first sinned. The story is that they found fig leaves. And they sewed them together to cover their bodies. They did that. But because God was sending them out. In his mercy. He made them the garments. I think that's a neat little fact. Isn't it? God provided for them. He said, you're going out. I'm not, I'm not kicking you out, but you can't be here anymore. So I'm going to make these garments of clothing for you out of skin. And he made the garments. And I think that's a beautiful thing, but it's, it gets even better. And then the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. I love this little sort of hint at Trinitarian theology. We won't get into it. But anyway, so <laughs> the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth. To guard the way to the tree of life. He wasn't saying, you can't come back in to happy fun land. You're being punished. He wasn't keeping them out of the Garden of Eden. He was protecting them from something very important. And that was the tree of life. God is basically pouring out his redemption and mercy here by saying, in your fallen state, in your awareness of good and evil, I don't want you to live forever. I don't want you to live forever that way. So you have to go away from the tree of life. And he, and he removes them from the tree of life and he guards the way to the tree of life. That's how the story ends. It's not a story of punishment. It's a story of redemption. It's saying, this is how we are. This whole story of Adam and Eve, I almost feel like we, we sometimes tell it in a woulda, coulda, shoulda kind of way. We're like, boy, wouldn't it be great if Adam and Eve had not screwed it up for the rest of us? That wasn't how it was told For generations, it wasn't woulda, coulda, shoulda. It was, this is who we are. It's important, children, that you understand that we are humans who will always have a propensity to do things that are selfish, to do things that are outside of God's ideal for us. And God is protecting us from living forever in that state. Isn't that beautiful? There's a redemption in that. Yeah, yeah. The redemption doesn't end there. The next story that we get, Adam and Eve have a couple of kids. You know them, Cain and Abel. They kind of fight. They get jealous. Cain kills Abel. And then, again, there's a consequence. God says, you got to be banished from from my presence. And Cain says, oh, this is more than I can bear, God. I'm going to be a wanderer. I'm going to be lost without you. I'm going to have to wander the earth. And then he says this, and anyone who finds me will surely kill me. God steps in with a little redemption. He says, no, not so. Not so, not not about the wandering the earth part. Sorry, Cain, that has to happen. But not so about the killing you part. God says this, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. A murderer? The first generation of humans, we have a murderer. And what does God do? God protects him. God says, I'm going to redeem this little bit of you. No one's going to kill you, Cain. You'll have to wander. It's the consequence of what you've done, but no one's going to kill you. There's redemption there. There's God stepping in and saying, your life is still valuable. And the judgment upon someone who commits murder doesn't belong to other humans, it belongs to God. Right? There's a redemption in that, that we miss sometimes when we look at it too quickly. After Cain and Abel, there's a much longer story in Genesis. The story of Noah. This one is probably the most complex of all of the stories in the first 11 chapters. It's got a lot of layers. There's a lot that happens. And we're not going to dive into it today. We could again probably preach a whole. Three month series on Noah. Just by itself. But, but I think it's really important to focus in. On the idea that. First and foremost. If you look at the story the right way. And don't focus on the fact that God kills everybody. <laughs> there's a redemption in that. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to say it, right? Can I also say, why do we teach this story to children? Why is this the first story we teach them? Guess what, kids? There's lots of happy animals that go on the ark, and then God kills everyone. Doesn't make sense to me. Lots of layers of meaning, but if you put yourself in an ancient mindset, if you put yourself in the mindset of ancient people for whom death and destruction was not necessarily that foreign to them, unfortunately, Like, the the point here is not that God destroyed everything. The point here is that God wanted to start over. The point here is that God said, I want to press the reset button. Just like I do every time I play a video game with my son. I'm like, can I just reset? Because I'm losing. (laughs) Things are not going right. Reset. That's what God wanted to do. And he chose a faithful person, and he started again, right? So that's sort of part one of the redemption. But then the part two of the redemption is, once all that happened... Here's the amazing thing: After the water dried up, Noah built an altar, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. I, ho- I hope there were more than two of those. Um, the Lord smelled pleasing aroma and said in his heart, "Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil." ...from childhood. God understands. He wanted to start over, but he says, you know what? I know the inclination of man is evil... ...but never again will I destroy all living creatures... ...as I have done. And then this beautiful poem, as long as the earth endures... ...seed time and harvest, cold and heat... ...summer and winter, day and night... ...will never cease. Now imagine you're an ancient person living in an ancient world... ...where you could get killed by anybody at any time where you were never sure about life, where you really weren't even sure about God, but you had this promise that no matter how evil people became, God would never destroy the earth. God would never wipe you out. That's a very different mindset than people who followed other ancient gods, right? Because other ancient gods were petty and jealous and fickle and could smite you like that. And here is a promise that gives these ancient people a worldview that says God will never destroy us. There's redemption there. There's hope there. Are you seeing how these stories are shaping the people that became our spiritual ancestors? And then finally, the story after that is the Tower of Babel. So people get together and they start to build a great city... Babylon and they build this tower and they want to reach up to the heavens they say come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building the Lord said if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. It's a very brief story. But what's happening here? What problem does God have with the people joining together and building something? Pooling their resources and being smart and capable and and, and really building something great. It sounds like the American ideal, right? Right? That's what we do. And what's God's problem with it? He says, if they can do this, they're going to be able to do anything without me. I want you to look back at what the people say. The people say, hey, let's do this so we can make a name for ourselves. We can make a name for ourselves. What's fascinating is a few chapters later, God is talking to a guy named Abraham and he's figuring out, here's we're going to create a covenant that's going to save the whole world. And you know what God says to Abraham? He says, Abraham, your name will be great among the entire earth. God doesn't want us to make a name for ourselves. God wants us to, to bear his name. God wants us to be his image bearers. He wants to make his name great through us and he wants us to partner with him. So the redemption in this story is that God is saying, no, 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 I don't want you to work on your own for these things and and accomplish them on your own. I want you to partner with me and I want you to bear my name. Don't make a name for yourself. So in a way, through all of these stories in Genesis 1 through 11, there's a similar theme. God is trying to do something. He's trying to do something big, something great, something wonderful. And always, there are the humans who are messing that up. The human beings are getting in their own way, and they're stumbling. And what does God do in every single instance? He offers a measure of redemption. I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to take what you've given me, humans, and I'm going to use it, and I'm going to work with it. Whether you've disobeyed, whether you've murdered someone, whether you've built a big city on your own and and disregarded me, I'm going to work with it. That's the redemption that we see in these first few chapters. There's one more story I want to zip back a little bit, uh, back into the Adam and Eve story, because I think this one's really important. There's a moment in the story of Adam and Eve when God realizes what they've done and they're ashamed and he says, well, there's going to be consequences. And we read about these consequences to their actions and it is things like, you're going to have to work the earth now to, 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 get, your, to get your food and that's going to be hard work. You're going to have pain in, in childbirth and that's going to be a struggle for you. But, but in addition to all the consequences that Adam and Eve received, there's also a little bit of doling out of consequences for the serpent itself. We call it the curse, this whole thing. And the curse... The serpent's curse, the part that that God directs at the serpent, he says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now remember, there's layers of symbol and meaning here. So while we could say, well, this is just ancient people saying, hey, beware of snakes because they're bad. No, there's a layer of meaning here that says "The, the serpent is the embodiment of evil, right? The the serpent is is the opposite of God. It is the anti-God. It is what told the, the humans to do something that God didn't want them to do. And here God is saying, I am going to have someday, there will be a seed, there will be a seed of Adam and Eve, an offspring that will crush evil forever. But this victor, this one who crushes the head, will not be unscathed. The serpent will strike his heel. Unmistakably, we read this through the lens of Jesus and see that Jesus is that wounded victor. Jesus is the one that God, in the very first story of the fall of man, God says, There will be someone who comes and redeems all of it. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We miss that sometimes. The seeds of redemption are there at the very beginning of this story. And these first 11 chapters lead us up to a place where God creates a covenant with a man named Abraham so he can restore the entire world to its original state. And that story progresses all the way through the era of the kings and through the prophets and it finds its climax in the story of Jesus himself who dies on a cross and eventually reaches its final end in the book of Revelation. Which is totally cool because when we find the final chapter of the book of Revelation. Look at this description of the city that we are all going to be in. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Listen to this. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Remember the tree that God was protecting us from with the flaming sword? The tree of life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. This is the promise of redemption. The seeds of redemption start in the earliest chapters of Genesis, and they trace all the way through to this final book, this final chapter, these final words. The tree of life is open to all. And the leaves, they're not for covering up anymore, Adam and Eve. They're not for hiding your shame. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. It's a beautiful image, a beautiful picture of this amazing story and the trajectory that goes all the way through it. And these earliest stories in Genesis are what shaped the people who became the main players in the story. The stories of of Genesis, telling those stories again and again, turned the children of Abraham into the people of God. Does that make sense? Those stories Turned the children of Abraham into the people of God. Because of how they saw the world. Because they they saw that God was good. They saw that God created by speaking, not by war and violence. Because they saw that God wanted to partner with humans. Because they saw that God wanted to redeem all things. That was his primary goal from the beginning. It's an amazing, amazing, beautiful story. So the implicit question... In stories like this, when, when you have oral tradition and it's passed down from generation to generation, it's not just relaying facts of history, right? It is, it is shaping a worldview. So the, the implicit question after you get told a story like this is, so what do I do now? How do I live my life differently because I have heard this story about my past, about my people, about my God? What difference does it make for me? And that's where you and I are today. What difference does it make for you and me today to hear these stories about the redemption of God? Does it remind us that no matter what we do, no matter how bad our sin might seem, God is gonna seek after us and say, where are you? And he's gonna offer us a measure of redemption. Does it remind us that, that the story began here and the story narrative, the arc of the story takes us to Jesus and because of Jesus we have now been fully redeemed from all of those things and that someday we will have the fullness of that redemption and life forever with him? What what does it tell us? How does it help us live our life?